As we start to delve into our summer series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we come to the start of his sermon. We call it the Beatitude. So please turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 12. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Be looking at today, what you look like on the outside reflects who you are on the inside. The scripture says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are, the, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we pray now that your word, inspired and given to us inerrantly by your Holy Spirit, would resonate in our hearts and lives to the glory of your Son. Through these very words, that he preached. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is Christ's instructions on the type of character that a true follower of his should have. If you had to answer the question, what does Jesus think a true follower of his looks like? What are the character qualities? What are the actions, the motivations of a true follower of Christ? From Jesus' own words, what does he expect from his followers? The answer to those questions in part are answered right here in the Sermon on the Mount. What you look like on the outside reflects who you are on the inside. We're going to see from the Beatitudes eight character qualities a follower of Christ should have. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus compares and contrasts what a true follower of his looks like as opposed to an external, not true follower. One of the fundamental truths of the Sermon on the Mount is is that a follower of Christ is radically different than those who do not follow Christ, not just in actions, but from the heart. Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is not about how you become a follower, but it's for the person who is already a follower and how that follower should live. The sermon is addressed to disciples. One commentator said, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you should not walk away thinking, I must turn the other cheek in order to be accepted by God. I must love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me in order to be accepted by God. I must follow the golden rule perfectly in order to be accepted by God. We are not accepted by God because of anything that we do. We are accepted by God completely and totally because a perfect Savior who died a bloody death in our place 
and because that perfect Savior rose again in victory. Yes, we pray for our enemies. We love those who persecute us. We follow the golden rule. But we do these things not in order to earn acceptance before our God, but because we have already been accepted by God through Christ, and we want to glorify him in everything that we do. See, the Beatitudes are not actions that we do in our own power, by our own personality and strength, but they are actions that we do in response because of, through Jesus Christ. Over and over again, as Jesus details what his followers should look like, we're going to be confronted with this fact. We can't do this. We can't in our own power, in our own external energy, by our own gumption, keep the law of Christ. The only hope of gaining any measure of obedience is only through dependence on him. We can't. But he can, and he wants to, in us, through us, to change us, so that we can become what only he could do in us. The Sermon on the Mount is not a new law to follow. It's not a list of actions. The sermon drives us to Jesus. It drives us to his grace. It's spiritual. It goes from the external to the internal into our hearts. We are not under law. We are under grace. But that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't have expectations for his followers. Sometimes nowadays in our cultures, we overstress grace. And we understress the reality that God has expectations on his followers, on you and me. But there's no battle between God's expectation and God's grace. In him, they're perfectly balanced. You see, without God's grace... We, we could never grow in meeting his expectations. And without his expectations, we would never know the depths of his grace. God's grace is real. And we depend upon it. And God's expectations are real. And it's only by God's grace that we're able to attempt to meet them. Remember that the key verse, the Sermon on the Mount, is Matthew 5.20. Where Jesus said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. These religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, they were the very picture of righteousness. If there was a picture in their day of what a good follower of God was supposed to look like, it was these guys. They met and often exceeded any kind of external religious standard. And then Jesus said to his disciples that the true follower of mine, their righteousness must exceed that of the most righteous people that that society knew. Why? Because what Jesus thinks true righteousness is, is the only opinion that counts. The Sermon on the Mount is a sentence by sentence condemnation of external superficial righteousness and an explanation, a description of the kind of righteousness that Jesus really expects from his followers. Because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. This truth could never be more evident than in Christ's teachings in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes give us a characteristic that all followers of Christ should exhibit. And none of them are external. They're all internal characteristics brought about by the Holy Spirit in our lives that then show as we live them. What is a beatitude anyway? 
Have you ever thought that word was funny? To me, that word has always been funny to me. Because it has absolutely nothing to do with the word attitude. It sounds like the word should have something to do with the word attitude. But it has absolutely nothing to do with the word attitude. It's actually the transliteration of the word blessed from the Latin. You know what transliterating is when you take the spelling of one word in its original language and just take it right over into your language and then pronounce the word. The word beatitude comes from the Latin word beatus. It simply means blessings, to bless. When you hear the beatitudes, all that word means is blessing or blessed. These aren't just, uh, you know, for the preacher or the priest or, you know, what they're supposed to look like. These, these blessings, these beatitudes are not just for a missionary or a deacon and what they're supposed to be like. These are the character qualities that Christ expects for each and every follower of his. Like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These eight character qualities are not separate, but they're a bunch that make up a whole. They work together. They build on each other. We, all believers, are meant to manifest all of them. Jesus is describing what every believer, all of us, should look like. Another point about the Beatitudes, as we've already said, is they are not meant to be humanly attainable. Their only way to manifest them, the only way to show them, the only way to be them is through the spiritual process that Jesus brings in their life of growth and change. Today we're going to look at these blessings in a different way. Instead of looking at one full beatitude and then the next, I'm going to do the first half of all the beatitudes this week and the second half of all the beatitudes next week. This week we're going to focus on the character qualities of each blessing And next week, we're going to focus on the results of those blessings. I found that one commentator had arranged it this way as I was studying, and it really helped me to understand this passage better and especially helped me apply the passage better. So let's look at the character qualities of the citizens of the kingdom. The first is blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor? There are two words in the New Testament used for poor. One is poor, meaning that they have very few resources. This word Jesus uses to describe the widow in Luke 21, 1 through 4. It says there in that passage that Jesus looked up and he saw the the rich put their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. This widow was poor, but she still had a few resources. The other word for poor means totally destitute, being poor with absolutely no resources at all. Jesus uses this word for poor in Luke chapter 16 as he describes the beggar Lazarus. In Luke 16, 19-21, he says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate there was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. 
who desired to be fed by what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even dogs came and licked his sores. See, this man had nothing. He wasn't just poor. He was begging poor. He had no resources. He was totally destitute. He was hopeless and helpless. Now, the word for poor that Jesus uses here in the first beatitude is this word for begging poor. The total destitute poor. The hopeless poor. It's this type of poverty. It's this type of need. There's no way that one can, by their own effort, by their own will, by their own strength, pull themselves free. Of course we know that is Jesus using this this word poor, he's not using it in a financial way, but talking about spiritual poverty, because the character quality that's mentioned here is not being poor in money, but being poor in spirit, to be destitute, hopeless in spirit. Psalm forty seventeen puts it this way, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. One commentator wrote, To be poor in spirit is to recognize one's spiritual poverty apart from God. To see oneself as one really is, lost, hopeless, helpless. Apart from Christ, every person is spiritually destitute, no matter of his education, wealth, social status, accomplishments, or religious knowledge. That's the point of the first beatitude. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their total spiritual destitution and their complete dependence on God. They understand that there are no saving resources in themselves, that they can only beg for God's mercy and grace. They know they have no spiritual merit and they know that they can earn no spiritual reward. Their pride is gone. Their self-assurance is gone. They stand empty-handed before God. That's us. That's me. That's you. We are beggarly poor in spirit. We are spiritually bankrupt. We bring nothing. How many things? Nothing. Not One thing to the table to earn or deserve God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. It's only when we come to grips with the fact, we come to grips with this humility of our true unrighteousness, that we can come to see Christ in his overabundance of grace and mercy and forgiveness. One said, there is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of all citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And all the other characteristics are, in a sense, the result of this one. Charles Wesley wrote, just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. Vile and full of sin am I. Thou art full of truth and grace. You see, the first step towards God is recognizing that you can't in any way earn or deserve salvation. It can only be given to you as a gift. One said that the beginning of repentance is a recognition of one's spiritual bankruptcy, of one's inability to become righteous on one's own. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3 
10 through 12. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. There's a great hymn that many of us know and love to sing, Rock of Ages. You know, that we could probably break out and just a cappella and just start singing it. Except for verse 3. I bet most of us have no idea about verse verse 3. It poetically reveals what is going on here in the heart of one who is poor. Here's verse 3. It says, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. See, if not for the cross, if not for the empty tomb, there would be no salvation. For what we could not do, nor ever do, Jesus did. What's the great sin that is shutting the door of heaven to multiple, many millions of people? What's the great sin? Pride. An unwillingness to be poor in spirit. A refusal to say to God that I bring nothing. I am nothing. I have nothing. But you bring everything. You did everything. You are everything. In pride, they reject their need for God. In pride, they deny their spiritual poverty. One of the fundamental characteristics of a true follower of Christ is humility. A humility that's inaugurated with the gospel. A humility that should and must permeate how we live our lives every day. Christian, if you have a problem with pride, look to the cross. If you have a problem with self-reliance, look to the cross. If you have a problem with self-righteousness, go back to the beginning. Retell yourself the gospel. Cling only to the substitutionary death and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring. Only to the cross I cling. Let that level of humility, let that level of being poor in spirit be the fundamental characteristic of your life. The next characteristic is to mourn. When we come to grips with the reality of the weight of our sin, the reality of our spiritual bankruptcy, what's the response that follows from that? To mourn, to be sorrowful. This mourning isn't just feeling bad about something, but it's the recognition of the condition of our heart. Of the nine words used in the New Testament for sorrow and mourning, the word used here is the strongest, most severe, most heartfelt mourning. We mourn in the strongest way over our sin when we finally see it as God sees it. There's no place in the Christian life for one to be callous towards sin, to have a hardened heart towards sin. We mourned over the reality of the depth of our sin at our salvation. We saw the separation that it caused when the Lord opened our minds and our hearts and our thoughts to the Spirit. We saw the price of our sin. That had to be paid so that we could have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We mourned the reality of our sin. 
that characteristic of mourning, of being brokenhearted about our sin, should be as real today in our lives as ever. As Christians, as one who have come to the cross for forgiveness and salvation and life, when we choose to sin, as so often each of us still do, we need to remember to mourn, to soften our hearts, to see sin for what it really is. Why? Because it's natural for us to justify our sin. It's natural for us to excuse our sin. But it is supernatural to be broken by our sin. It is supernatural to take sin seriously, to see it as God sees it, and then respond to it as God wants us to. So think, when's the last time your heart was broken? You mourned because of your sin. In light of the great salvation we've been given, in light of the reality of eternal life, in light of the hope and joy and thanksgiving, all the positives that we have been given, we dare not forget to continue to mourn the sinful choices of our lives. Next, Matthew 5, 5 says, Blessed are the meek. Meekness is not a you know, well-respected American character quality. Independence and strength, even a touch of arrogance. That's what we need to make it in this world. But not for us, right? Not for us. Because we're followers of Christ. See, we belong to a different kingdom. We bow to the king of kings. We submit to his standards. See, often the challenge with meekness that we have is because we often equate it with weakness. But that's just not true. No reasonable person would ever call Jesus weak. His strength, his character, his boldness, his focus on mission, all done with meekness. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, meek. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is like meekness is power under control. See, Jesus had all the power. Is there anyone who ever walked planet earth more powerful than Jesus? No. He had all the power you could ever imagine and beyond what you could never imagine. Strength. Under control, always bridled his power. See, this word, this word meek, was used by the Greeks to describe a horse, a horse that had been broken, and now responds to the rider's requests with meekness. All the power of the horse, now controlled by bit and bridle. This characteristic of meekness means that when you are wronged, instead of responding in retaliation, You respond with kindness because you're meek. When insulted, instead of responding with an insult in return, you respond with charity because you're meek. When hurt, a meek person responds with humility. See, meekness is proactive compassion. Proactive compassion. Meekness is leading with kindness. Meekness is having the spiritual maturity to build up and to be helpful rather than to destroy and to be critical. Jesus, in his strength, was meek. How about you? 
What is the character quality of meekness, of gentleness, of proactive compassion rank in your life? Matthew 5, 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, hungering, thirsting represent the basic necessities of life. We all hunger and thirst. Some of you are right now hungering and thirsting. It reminds us of life. It brings us to life. In our spiritual lives, we hunger and thirst. We hunger and thirst in our spiritual lives for the basic necessities of spiritual sustenance. All people do. And as followers of Christ, what is the characteristic that shows that we're hungering and thirsting for Christ? It's when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? It's a religious term, right? It's hard to define. What does righteousness mean? Here's my simple definition of righteousness. Doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. What's righteousness? Doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. As followers of Christ, we should hunger and thirst for obedience, for doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. A type of obedience that flows out of our heart into demonstrable actions. The scribes and Pharisees hungered and thirsted for self-righteousness. It wasn't about obeying God from the heart. It was all about looking good on the outside for others. Matthew 5.16 says we're supposed to do our good works. We're supposed to live out our lives in a demonstrable righteousness so that when others see us, they don't actually end up seeing us. We're living our lives in such a way that reflects the priorities of Jesus Christ that they see us and they give glory to God. Hungering and thirsting for God to be glorified in our life is not a half-hearted, part-time Whenever I feel like it, Sunday morning endeavor. Imagine only eating once a week, a partial meal on Sunday morning. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not a half-hearted, part-time endeavor. Psalm 42 says, as a deer pants for a flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 60 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Is to hunger and thirst for Jesus. The believer that hungers and thirsts for righteousness is a believer that hungers and thirsts for conformity to God's will, to bring glory to Jesus Christ and all that he does. So evaluate your passions. What are you hungering and thirsting for in your spiritual life? What is the sustenance of your spiritual life? How far down on the list of the passions of your life is hungering and thirsting for Jesus, for his will and for his glory? As followers of Christ, this is our highest devotion. Is it? The next characteristic is merciful. Simple definition of mercy is not getting what you deserve. When someone has wronged you, it's merciful to respond not in kind, but instead to respond with kindness, forgiveness, even love. God has not given us what our sins deserve. He has shown us mercy. Where would we be without 
God's mercy in our lives. A Christian forgives because he has been forgiven and is being forgiven. A Christian loves because he has been loved and is being loved. A Christian is merciful because he has been given mercy and is now, even now, being given mercy. The very heart of who we are in our character is to reflect the very heart of what has been given and is being given to us. Do you give out of love to others in the same proportion that God has loved you? Do you give out forgiveness to others in the same proportion that God has forgiven you? Do you give mercy to others in the same proportion that God has given mercy to you? Not getting what you deserve. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Pure in heart has two main applications. First of all, it talks about the holiness, the cleansing that God has wrought in our lives, in our most inward place, our inner being. It tells of the position of the follower in Christ because of the work that Christ has done in their heart. One wrote, purity of heart is not manufactured by the believer, but is granted by the God of mercy to those who mourn their spiritual bankruptcy and who seek his righteousness. The other application carries the idea of pure, meaning sincere and undivided in integrity. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase of the New Testament, translated verse 8 as, Blessed are the utterly sincere. Those pure in heart recognize that their whole life, both private and public, is transparent before God. Hypocrisy, duplicity, insincerity are abhorrent to someone who is pure in heart. Being one way around one person and being totally different way around another person is the opposite of being pure in heart. The characteristic of being pure in heart is being utterly sincere, totally authentic. One person with one life and one heart. Are you the same person all the time? Are you pure in heart? Are you free from my hypocrisy? People, when they meet you, do they get the genuine you? An important characteristic of a true follower of Christ is integrity, one life. The next characteristic is being a peacemaker. This beatitude is not about getting peace. This beatitude is about giving peace. There are two applications here. The primary application is that Jesus is the peacemaker. Jesus is the greatest giver of peace. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus alone is the peacemaker between God and man. Romans 5.10 says that when we were enemies with God, we were opposed to God. We were opposed to his plan and his love. But then Jesus stepped up between us and God. And through him, his death and his resurrection, we've been given salvation. We have been reconciled with God. We have been given peace. With God. Colossians 1, 9-20 says it this way. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus' blood secured our peace with God. He is the peacemaker. So we too can be peacemakers as we introduce people to Christ. As we bring them to him who gives them peace 
It is our privilege, our role of bringing them to Jesus so they can receive that peace. A secondary application is the idea that as Christians, we are to be peacemakers, not just bringing people to Christ so they can receive peace with God, but bringing people to Christ so that they can receive the peace of God. We're bringing people not just for salvation reconciliation, but also for relational reconciliation. So are you a peacemaker? When's the last time that God used you to bring someone to him so that he could give them peace with God, reconciliation, eternal life? Are you a peacemaker? Is that the reputation of your character? One who brings peace to relational reconciliation? Lastly, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is both physical persecution and, and verse 10, verbal persecution, being reviled, slandered, falsely accused. Second Timothy 2.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, if you live out these seven other characteristics, qualities, as a true follower of Christ, you're going to stand out. You're going to distinguish yourself as a follower of Christ. Of Christ and on his account because of who Jesus is and because of our allegiance to him, we'll have to endure persecution. Why? Because we're living for a different king. We're living for a different kingdom. We're under a totally different set of ethics and principles than the world around us because our moral code is based on biblical truth and not on any laws of man because we are by nature and by conviction little followers of Jesus Christ, Christians, countercultural, because we're sold out all in Jesus first followers because of who he is. We face persecution. Jesus said in John fifteen twenty. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. See, this character quality here is a willingness, a willingness to submit to persecution because it's an integral part, a component of what it really means to be a true follower of Christ. See, standing up for Christ will mean they'll have to stand against persecution of this world so what are we to do stand up to willingly accept that when you go against the grain of our culture of our society of the ethics of our world they will stand up against you it's amazing list of character qualities of a true follower of christ of a citizen of heaven It's an amazing list of what Jesus expects each of us of our lives to look like. Remember, what you look like on the outside reflects who you are on the inside. See, a true follower of Christ is poor in spirit. They recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. They mourn for they realize the cost of the sin. They are meek. They are guided by proactive compassion. They hunger and thirst for righteousness because Jesus is the number one passion of their life. They're merciful because they know the depth of the mercy they have received. (coughs) They're pure in heart. What you see is what you get. 
No hypocrisy, real integrity. They're peacemakers, bringing people to Christ so that he might give them peace. They're persecuted because they care more about obeying God than surrendering to the world around them. So evaluate, think, look at your life. Is this picture that Jesus has just drawn about what a true follower of Christ looks like? Is that a picture of you? I know the answer to that. Let me tell you what the answer to that question is. No, it's not. It's not. It's not a picture of any of us. That's the point. The point is that these are things we have to strive for. These are areas in our lives we have to change. We have to evaluate. We have to grow. So how do we respond? We pray. God, please do this for me, in me, and through me. Please change me in ways that I can't myself. Please make me more like your son. Please challenge me and convict me. I want to be this picture that you've drawn. Let's pray together. Jesus, you have laid out for us this amazing picture of a follower of Christ. What it means to follow you. These character qualities. And Lord, in so many ways, each of us acknowledge that we're falling short. But that's the point. The point of falling short is so that we can grow and so that we can change and so that we can take it seriously. And Lord, that's exactly what we want to do. We want to ask you to do in us and through us what we can't do ourselves. We're asking you to challenge us and to convict us so that we might grow in these areas. We might, we might mourn more. We might grow in proactive compassion we might raise in our lives the passion of knowing and hungering and thirsting for Jesus Christ. We might be known as mercy-giving people, pure in heart, full of integrity and, and no hypocrisy, peacemakers. Lord, that we would be poor in spirit recognizing the destitute situation of our lives and thus then relishing the truth of Jesus Christ and all the difference that he has made. Recognizing the grace and the beauty and the love of Jesus Christ. Recognizing his sacrifice for us. Jesus, what you've done. Lord, help us today. through the conviction of your spirit to grow, to be more like this picture that Jesus has painted for us. In Jesus' name, amen.